Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Heart of Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Desiree Siegfried, and I am just so happy to have you here. I just feel like fall is always the start of like a new season. I love when the leaves are falling and pumpkin spice lattes are at Starbucks. I mean, I just love the feeling. I, it just feels renewed and refreshed, like something good is about to happen. I just feel it in the air and I am just so excited for all that is to come with the podcast in the next couple weeks and the next couple months. So I hope that you tune back in each and every week. I have awesome guests, but I also have a comprehensive and intentional series coming up that will we will dive into our identity, into our purpose, into our calling and into our faith to truly awaken what is inside, to be able to then be kingdom ambassadors and truly live out our faith with intention. So come back each week, every Thursday, there will be an episode that will read or listen kind of like a study guide. And you can head to DesireeSickery.com to the podcast notes each week to download a prompt to download a form to really fill out and be engaged in this discussion. I just cannot wait to really dive in to what's been on my heart and what I really, really hope you uh, get from this. It's going to be amazing. Well, today, today is just such a fun conversation that I have with Mary Morant. We are just kindred spirits. We have very similar stories um, of our childhood and growing up, but also just like overcoming some identity issues and some things that carry with us throughout our adulthood um, that have happened in the past. So join us. I love her so very much. She is such a sweet, soft-spoken woman with a beautiful soul to share her heart with others. You can find her on the Mary Morantz show on her podcast, but she wrote her memoir called Dirt, and it's a fantastic read that we are going to dive into and discuss a little bit more. So tune in and enjoy. Thank you, Mary, for joining me on the podcast today. I'm just so excited to chat with you. Oh my gosh, Desiree, I have to tell you that after you were on my show a couple of weeks ago, immediately I hopped into, we have ClickUp for our team for my podcast. And I was just like, I love her so much. And just like tagged our entire team. And um, everybody, when we shared the episode, everybody was just in my DMs like, I love her. She's the best. So oh, it's a huge so honor. Nice. It's really nice to hear, but I think it also helped because like, I don't know, there were similarities in the stories and your mm. story and my story. And I think women in general relate to that vulnerability of being able to share, share, yeah. share struggles or hurts or wounds. And so I wanted to talk to you about your book, Dirt, because yeah. it was so good. And it's Oh, your- good. I yeah. saw you were reading it. That's so good. That's oh, it, it's so good. I mean, I loved learning more about your story and just growing up in West Virginia and logging yeah. family. And, but I think the, the biggest part that I kind of took away from it too, is just how much like our childhood really shapes us into the women that we become. And for you, there was a lot of things to overcome and where you had to kind of find your identity elsewhere than as the girl in the trailer. But one thing too, that I related with you is you, you still always had big dreams for yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I think, I think what's so interesting for everybody listening is that, you know, I would actually, I would love to know the statistic on this, like the percentage of people who actually do just have those very, I, you know, idyllic childhoods where there was like just a happy home and everything was really calm all the time. And my husband, Justin is actually one of those people. Um, I asked him once, <laughs> same. I would say Chris. Yeah. Chris is the yeah. same. And I think that's, it was so helpful for me to see that just as I'm sure you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So helpful. And it, first of all, like they become so grounding to us. I feel like just to know that there is the possibility to have that example, if you didn't necessarily see it when you're growing up. And so I think for everybody listening, there's a really good chance that you didn't have the perfect childhood, that there are things, these wounds from childhood that you're still carrying with you. And for a lot of people, I know for me for a very long time, that thing in your story, whether that was childhood or young adult or or last year for that matter, that thing in your story that feels really hard and really messy and muddy, we tend to think that thing completely disqualifies me from any of these big goals that I have for myself or for any kind of calling for, for God to do anything more, you know, miraculous with my life. And so we tend to take that thing and hide it away. And uh, in the book dirt, I talk about becoming this most put together woman in the room, this girl after the trailer. And I see this, I see this in so many friends who have similar stories where we feel like if we can just have nice enough clothes, a nice enough home, a happy enough marriage, good enough vacations. You know, if our, if our kids can have the right clothes, if we can have the right SUV at drop-off, whatever the case is, then people won't be able to look right through us. When we walk into any room, we feel like for me, I feel like that smell of mildew and dollar store vanilla perfume introduces me into any room I walk into. And so for me, for a very long time, safety and running from that story equated to a white kitchen island, you know, the, the right outfits, the right house, whatever. And so for anybody who's listening, the biggest thing that I hope that you hear as we go through this conversation is that that thing that you're actually trying so hard to hide, mm-hmm. that thing is the, is what's going to connect people to you most. It's your superpower, right? So like we think perfection makes us more acceptable, but it's actually a stiff arm that keeps people from us. Absolutely. All I can think of too, is like, as we try to play the part, it's just a bandage, a bandaid on an, on an open wound. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that we can uh, fake it per se. Like I remember in high school, it was the same thing. I, I mean, I was put together. I bought all my clothes myself with the hard, you know, earned money that I made at Outback Steakhouse. Um, (laughs) And I made sure to match my nails to my clothes and, and everyone knew I didn't like, I wasn't wealthy, but I think for some reason you do feel you have to put on a part. Um, yeah. It in. yeah. And, and though I may have uh, wore the right clothes, I still would walk into a room and feel that I didn't fit in. And I think that's yeah. many people can relate. And that's why yeah. it's important to, to dig deep into the wound. And yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know what I was thinking about when you were saying that is when we first announced dirt, when we first announced the book and we showed the cover and it has the picture of the trailer there were a few people from my hometown who did not really know me personally, or maybe they like knew of me, um, who did not believe the story, who did not believe that it was true because they only knew me as the person in the hallways of the high school, right? They knew me as a cheerleader. I was president of my class for a couple of years. 
you know, playing the prom or whatever. And that's exactly what I'm talking about when I had already learned how to become that most put together woman. And I was already showing people just one particular side, one particular, you know, facade of what I wanted them to see. And so they could not wrap their minds around that that could also be true. And I could go home to a trailer every night. Yeah, absolutely. And at such young age, like high school, even college, well, wait, even in adulthood, people don't ask questions. So I would have shared my story if people asked. And Mm -hmm. so it's same as you, I bet, but you know, just better off if we don't. Uh, But one of the things as we're talking about wounds, I, I really admired and I loved the story with your, I just loved all the stories with your father because there's a lot of beautiful redemption in it and, Mm. and it made you who you are. But um, I love the story of when you're in high school because because no parent and high school kid really get along. I mean, if you do, yeah. that's a blessing. But I know even for myself, it's it's a hard time, especially yeah. in a young girl's life. And then you had your father um, raising you and mm-hmm. you guys were getting at it and not getting along. But then he hurts himself on the job and you take the time you set aside your differences and you, you bandage his finger each and every day, just as you would before. And I don't know, I thought I saw such beauty in that because Mm. one, it took a very strong person to set aside those differences, Mm. but also it's like family is blood and there was just so much love in your action. And then from that, there was healing and it wasn't just the healing in his finger. It was like the healing in your relationship. And yeah. so I don't know if you could speak a little bit to the relationship with your father, but I feel like in the past year, especially there's a lot of differences within families and, yeah, and there's healing that needs to be happen. But how did that yeah. really truly uh, work with you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for everybody listening a little back, a little bit of the backstory mm-hmm. is important. And that's that my mom, well, my parents got married when my mom was 17 and you know, very young. And my dad's a logger. My mom cleaned houses. Um, they had me when she was 20. They bought this trailer when they were like, I don't know, 19 or something, you know, just temporary. And it becomes the house that I live in my whole life growing up. And my mom actually ended up leaving when I was nine. And so the, the interesting part about that is that my mom was the one who really wanted to have a baby. And my dad said, Oh, we're not ready yet. Like, let's get a little more money gathered up, whatever. And so he not really being the one who was super excited to have a baby ends up being the one raising me. And, um, I, in a lot of ways at nine, you know, he still was going to go to work from five in the morning until nine o'clock at night in the woods. So I, at nine started to take over kind of, you know, taking care of the trailer, doing the laundry, doing the dishes, trying to figure out how to cook or whatever the case is. My, my grandma Goldie lived next door. So she took yeah. care of a lot of the cooking. I love but Goldie. I love yes, about Goldie. Goldie. <laughs> Sounds fabulous. I love yes. It. Yeah. She, she was a firecracker. That's for sure. Um, but so I, I had to grow up really fast and my dad also had to grow up really fast when he was young. He went to, he started working in the woods when he was 12. And so you have general teenage angst, general, I'm starting to pull away from you and make my own way in the world. And then you add into that, this deep shame and resentment and frustration where you, it starts to dawn on you. There must be more than this. And, and there, you know, you start to see friends who have nice houses and parents who do things differently. And you start to realize, oh, this is not the norm necessarily. 
or at least it's not the ideal for that matter. So we were really going head to head, you know, he would come home and I would see the truck lights coming up the driveway and I would, you know, go to my room and slam the door. We were just really in each other's faces. And there's, there's a, a refrigerator scene where I describe, like, he's kind of got me pushed up against the refrigerator saying, you need to like, get your act together. Um, and shortly after that, he ended up getting, uh, there's a chainsaw sharpener, like a picture, like a, a, a sand paper grit spinning on a wheel. And he got his finger up against that. Oh, um, yeah, it was, we won't go into too much graphic detail, but no, it was a really okay, bad way. But that just describes so much of, I mean, that was just like a day in the life of him. Like it wasn't yeah. like, oh, I need to go to the hospital. No, it's like, okay, I wrap it up and I go home. And I right. back to work. Yeah, that's right. He did not go to the hospital. He did not stop working. He put chainsaw grease in it and kept, you know, to protect the wind. I know when I read that, is that something that like they did? Like, uh, that- I get, you know, I, I guess, or it could, I mean, for all I know, it could be something that was like passed down through the generations. Cause my family has about eight generations deep of loggers oh, wow. or it could have just been something that he invented on the fly. I don't know, but I, I would guess it was more something that they probably just did, you know, cause these were very, very, very tough men. There were about eight men that worked for him and, you know, he didn't, he kept working. He worked the rest of the night and he put that chainsaw grease in it and he came home and for about six weeks, every night that he came home, I would have to clean that day's chainsaw grease out of it, uh-huh. you know, disinfect the wound, bandage it up, make sure it was healing, what have you. And then the next day he would go get it dirty all over again. And I think any of us who grew up with fathers who have dirt on their hands. You understand that mentality. There is, you know, it's the, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of yes. mentality. If I stop working, we don't eat. Yes. And My so construction. So the dirt just was really, yeah. it was very relatable. <laughs> and I don't know if you were like this Desiree, but I hated my dad's dirty hands when I was growing up, when I was in high school. Was, don't come I, to the football game with those dirty. Oh, mine was the, the, the rusted yellow Datsun truck that he would drive. Mm. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, he always went through like new cars. Well, I mean, new like broken down cars because he didn't yeah. need a nice car to go to work. So he's like, it's going to get dirty anyways. But then, right. uh, you know, in high school, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. I would get so mad at him, you know, like, gosh, like, can't you just like wash them a little longer? Like joy dish soap fixes <laughs> all manner of wrongs, you know, or get the grease out from under your nails. I was always really aware that I had a father who got his hands dirty when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I appreciated that he was getting his hands dirty to build my life, mm-hmm. you know? And so for six weeks, we, we, I really, I mean, we were in the thick of just, I was doing basic surgery, you know, <laughs> and when the scar healed, it actually shaped, like healed in the shape of an M and we yeah. joked that I left my mark on him. And so I titled that chapter the, or the, the chapter that that part is in the wounds, the scars that stitch us back together again. And so there's an earlier part in the book where I'm talking about the scars that kind of tear us apart and some different kinds of scars that I bear from growing up from my mom to my dad to just people completely unrelated. And there, there are those kinds of scars that rip us apart. And then there are scars that tell us we survived something and we, we came from something and, you know, we are healing together to build something better together. And so there, you know, when we look at the scars in our story, we kind of get to decide, well, I see the mud on the surface or the miracle underneath. Healed people heal people. And I, I, 
I, I mean, it's in my own life, I see it happen. And just in other people's stories where it's from our, our scars that we actually are able to speak life into other people's wounds. Mm, so, yes. Yeah. It's cool that you talk about that and just how the scar um, was in the shape of an M on your dad's finger. I just think that's yeah. beautiful. You know what I think is interesting is so often when we talk about being the break in some serious generational chains, we're yes. like, it will be different for my family. It will be different for my kids. So often, and for a very long time, I fell into this. I would define that by all those things I mentioned before, you know, what kind of car we're driving, where the house is like, what kind of genes they get for the first day of school, whatever the case is. And really, when you want to be the break in your family's generational chains, you cannot do that truly while you are still a hurt person, yeah. right? Because in the same way that heal people, heal people, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And so you can have the most beautiful kitchen in the world and still feel completely broken on the inside, right? That's not going to, no yeah. amount of J. Crew clothes, believe me, I've tested yes, this the philosophy. <laughs> Um, is going to fill that hole you have in your heart. And so if we really want to say, hey, my family tree looks different, starting with me, that's an inside job. It's not an outside job. Yes, absolutely. That's so good to know, especially just for, you know, as being parents and wanting so much more for our children. It goes beyond the material things and it goes beyond uh, what might be perceived, but truly what you can break within generational, you know, patterns. You have such a great way with words. Um, I, I, I say it, it's like very poetic, you know, oh, and, I know you. <laughs> yes, and I know um, you felt, you know, God gave you words to say and, mm. and did you always know that you wanted to write or was that something that came later in life? I did always know that I wanted to write since I was about five. That was wow. when I can first remember that dream. I was like the weird kid that would walk through the yard thinking in narrative, you know, she walked through the yard <laughs> and picked up this toy, you know, the, the fur that was weathered proving blah, blah, blah. You know, I was, I was a weird kid, <laughs> um, a child, true child of the eighties. And, you know, I was talking to, I had John Acuff on my show and we were talking about this of like that it might be a, a Glennon Doyle quote. I forget who first said it, but this idea that like the lack of boredom that kids that have, you know, they're being raised today because yeah. they always have a phone or a video game or whatever, that it's, it's scary to think about the creativity that will not be born out of boredom in this uh, generation. Yes. I feel that so much in my soul. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's um, no outlet. There's, you're not allowing space to be creative. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're just being told what to think, being told what's mm -hmm. good and being told what's creative rather than thinking it. Yes. A hundred percent. Apparently JK Rowling came up with Harry Potter when a train she was on got stuck for four hours and she didn't have any kind of internet access. Oh, wow. So there you go. That's what, that's what was at stake. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, but I will say like, I think like most of us, we tend to do this thing where the gifts we have, because they are ours, they feel small and yeah. we wish for other people's gifts. So I always really wished I had the gift of song. I always pictured myself, you know, as a country singer on stage with my hairbrush in the living room in the trailer. And I am like one step above Cameron Diaz and my best friend's wedding. <laughs> it's not good. It's really not good. And so I, I wished, you know, I prayed for the gift of song and instead God gave me the gift of words. So that has been, you know? oh, say that again. Well, which is song really, if you Ooh, are I like that, Yeah, it is. If you're putting words together, that's what's needed to create the song. And it's, I don't know, because I'm actually yeah. the same as you. I, I cannot sing for the life of me. Um, <laughs> it actually says I'm tone deaf. 
and uh, <laughs> which I am um but 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 God's given me the gift of like poetry and so I'm writing songs but I can't sing them <laughs> oh I love that and I mean the psalms really are, are songs the right there yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. well I mean, I just love this topic of really um, kind of overcoming those, I don't even know what to call it, like just where we wanted to hide ourselves because we talk about hiding our true selves, but also like the gifts that we feel are small and we want something mm-hmm. else because I, God's purpose, he wants us to see those and, and grow them and, and use them because he gifted them to us for a reason. Um, and I think yeah. that's the biggest struggle for women. I mean- everyone I talk to, me personally, it's feeling that you have a voice and feeling that worth and, and all of that. So how Mm -hmm. did you, because I mean, so a little backstory, you went to Yale to pursue (laughs) your law, um, your law degree. And I mean, just that in itself, you would never guess you came from, you know, a trailer or, or any of your past really would be what someone would assume, I guess you could say. But as yeah. you stepped foot onto campus and as you realized maybe you did come from, you know, a different background, how did that really affect the way you saw yourself or the way that, did it set you back any in your identity mm. or did, were you able to kind of see that you were different and push yeah. forward? Yeah. You know, what's interesting when I think about law school and I think about, especially like my first year of law school, and I had never, to to my, that I can remember, I had never reacted to a scenario like this before, but in law school, my coping mechanism where I'd always been like super, super ambitious, super achiever, super like, you know, gold stars, give me all the gold stars, all the A pluses. <laughs> like I, you know, I got one B plus in college that I still like, <laughs> I'm mad about to this day. Like I was that person for a very long time. When I got to law school where it was everybody was like that. And I was feeling this huge chip on my shoulder from where I came from. I adopted this weird coping mechanism where it was almost like I wanted to be known as like the, oh, whatever, it's going to be fine. Like, let's like go watch a movie instead of studying. Like, look how relaxed I am. Like, look how not stressed out I am. Like, look how, how little I care. It's going to be fine. Like my reaction to everyone else being Um, really ambitious or being like a gunner was to almost like take myself out of the competition. And I think what I was really kind of saying is like, you can't lose races. You don't enter, you know, and like this idea of if I hold you at arm's length, if I reject you before you can reject me, then I don't get hurt. And I think if there's one thing that I could do over with law school, it would be to go back and kind of like movie montage, not an actual real time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do that again, but in movie montage, I would do it again. And I would not hold people at arm's length. I would give them because in three years, nobody ever did anything to make me feel small for where I came from. That was all me fearing that would happen. Yeah. That's so interesting how we yeah. project the way yeah. other people feel about us when that's yeah. not at all how they feel. Um, yeah. And I think that just does stem from maybe lack or where you feel that you don't measure up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, people can relate to that. I, I feel like maybe deep down I was the same too because I always wanted, yeah, like I always wanted people to care about me, but at the same time I was kind of like pushed away. I I think I would also push away, yeah, un- unintentionally. Um, and it's just sad to look back and be like, wow, that maybe that that is a coping mechanism. 
Yeah. You don't a hundred percent hurt, but also so that, cause I also was carefree uh, where I'd be like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But deep down, I'm like, I'm going to make it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and what's weird is that when moving in more into like my second or third year of law school, um, when I like was like, well, let me actually like really try in some of these classes. Like, like I had convinced myself and I talk about this in the book. The first version of this was like, oh, I can't go to WVU. That's the big university in West Virginia. It has 22,000 students. I will be 22,001. I will be at the bottom of the barrel. I will fail out yeah. because I come from a small town. That was, that was, it's, it sounds some, you know, overly simplified or hyperbolic now, but like truly I thought where you come from determines where you end up. I really did. I thought like they're coming from out of state. They're coming from New Jersey to go to West Virginia. Of course, they're going to be more qualified than I am. And, you know, I think the same kind of thing was, you know, going into law school, it was this idea of, oh gosh, like if I try to be on that journal, then I won't make it. Or if I try to get a good grade, then, and, and I don't, then I'll be upset. And it gets a little strange because at Yale for law school, we didn't actually have grades. We had pass fail and you could get an honors if you did really exceptionally well in the class. And so second year, third year, I actually start trying and I had believed like, there's no way I'll be able to keep up with these other students who've gone to really nice prep schools or most of them, you know, a lot of them went to an Ivy for undergrad. Like, I, I, like how can I compete? So I just won't. When second, my second year, third year, I actually started trying and I'm getting honors in these same classes that other people who had totally different starts in life did, um, had, were also taking. And so I think it's just this thing that we do where we would rather stay home than risk getting the answer wrong, right? I, I would go down to class. Sometimes there's the Socratic method in law school, which is horrible, as horrible as you imagine, where you just get called on and called on and called I, on until you get it wrong. Gosh, that's like my worst nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> me too. And it was my reality for three years. So, you know, like the whole Elwood scene or what have yeah. you just play that out. And so sometimes going down to class, I just, I couldn't like, work up the nerve. I felt like I was getting an ulcer, like stressing out about it. So I would just turn around and go back home. And I feel like that is sometimes how we show up to our lives. Mm -hmm. We say, of course, all these other people are more qualified. Of course, all these other people must be more equipped. Of course, all these other people must have more of a calling or a talent over their lives. So I will just not show up rather than risk looking stupid. And yeah. so, so many people listening right now are sleeping and sitting on dreams, God-given dreams and God-given talents and God-given callings that he is asking people to go serve the world with. They're sleeping on them because they think somebody else is more called or more talented or Absolutely. more equipped. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And I mean, that's also the attempt of the enemy. Like, you know, if, if you allow fear, the fear of being able to use your gifts, then of course, you know, you're going to start getting more doubt, more doubt, more worry, yeah. more, and then it just breaks us down. But you've got to know that you were made for a purpose. Your gifts were given for a purpose. And I love everything you said, because it's true. And I think especially now more than ever, because of fear, um, it's keeping people from living out their calling. Mm. And, and honestly, people need, people need your gift. <laughs> That's what I want. To yeah. People need your gift. They need your words, your art, your creativity, your knowledge, your wisdom. They need it. And yeah, if there's anything you could say to people to awaken that, 
what would it be? You know, I was thinking about this when I feel like there's like, um, so, so first of all, I highly recommend every single person listening, read the book, the war of art, um, by Stephen Pressfield. It's amazing. That's funny. I actually have it, but I haven't read it yet. So I'm going to read it up, read it today. It's like a, it's a super fast read, super, super fast read. Um, and anyway, he talks about this force that he calls the resistance that anytime you are about to do something, especially with a creative gift that is going to kind of take you to where you're going to be operating on another level, especially if that gift will help others, resistance is going to kick in. And as he says, resistance, the thing about resistance you have to know is it is not really original. It uses a lot of the same scripts over and over, uh, on a lot of different people. You know, it's not like over here inventing new ways to attack people. And so it tends to look like who's ever going to care about this. Uh There's already somebody else who's done this. There's already somebody who's done it better. There's already somebody who's done it with a bigger platform that more people are going to listen to you. Maybe I should just procrastinate. Maybe I should go organize that shelf. Maybe I should wait until it's perfect. (laughs) Right. It's like, those are basically the scripts that it kind of works through. And that's the, the the first few are the ones that I really want to hone in on because there have been probably a dozen, if not more stories about humble beginnings to the Ivy league that have been told. And it was really easy to get in my head about that. Like, why does the world need another one of these stories? And all I kept coming back to was this right here, but that is my story. That is the story that God gave me. These are the gifts that God gave me. And this place where your gifts meet your story, that crosshair intersection has the power. He can use that to change other people's lives. Because when I was writing this book, I didn't say, Oh gosh, like, what do I need to do to make sure it's like totally different, you know, invent a whole different original angle. Instead, what I said is, (laughs) what does it look like for me to tell the truth? What does it look like for me in my story with my perspective, especially a grace filled perspective look like to tell the truth? And there's a great quote from CS Lewis that says, if you try to be original, you never will be. But if you instead focus on telling the truth without giving two pens about whether it's been done before nine times out of 10, you will find yourself at original. So that's what I would say to people is instead of thinking about who's done it, who's more popular, who has more Instagram followers, ask yourself who it could help. And what does it look like for you to tell the truth? Yeah, that's so good. And I mean, that's so relevant, I think in everyday life with everything we're doing, everyone we're meeting, how we can, that's just, that's really good. So how did, would you say that you came to a place of this, I guess, overcoming that um, and pushing through to your dreams? Was that something that was learned or was there an experience that took place or was that just something you've always Mm. lived by? You know, one of the most important things that I think happened is there was an entirely different draft of dirt. So I had to turn in my first draft December 2nd, 2019. And we were handing off to copy editing February 17th. And so I I sent over the first draft of dirt and that first draft was really the first time I was ever taking the lid off of Pandora's box and saying, (laughs) what have I been stuffing down for the last 30 or 40 years, whatever it is. Um, And, you know, let's just pour it all out there on the page. And so in hindsight, I kind of say like that first draft was for me. It was kind of like getting that infection out of the wound, right? It was saying like, this happened. Let's acknowledge that this happened and let's, let's, let's bear witness to it. 
And so I turned it into my editor and what happened was she had another project she was finishing up. So I didn't hear back from her for a day. And when I, when I hit send, I was like to my husband, Justin, I was like, I think we're done. Like maybe we'll like fix a few commas, but like, I feel like that's like a done book right there. And in that 24 hours, that beat that I was given, I kind of joked that it was sort of like my Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge moment where you get to wake up and go, is it still Christmas? I have seen a future that I don't like. Do I still have a chance to get it right? And so I told my editor, I want to gut this and start over. This is, there's nothing in this that's grace filled. There's nothing in here that's redeeming. It's, it's just a a look at what happened to me story. And so I had two months to gut and rewrite 50,000 new words. Um, It was the most intense, exhausting, um, you know, it was a marathon that tested me physically and emotionally and mentally. And I will tell you this, I have never had a more tangible experience of God because every morning when I woke up and said, I have nothing left to give. Remember, I'd already just written 50,000 words and I'm writing 50,000 new ones. That's a lot. Um, There's not a doubt in my mind that for two months we woke up together and God wrote this book through me. There's not a question in my mind. Um, And at the very same time we had gotten a, this is very random, but stay with me. We'd gotten a Peloton. And I was like, that was like my one 30 minute thing I did for me. And I was writing the other 12 hours a day. And it was so insane how the things that instructors were saying were lining up with what I was going through. It was like, we didn't come to this mountain just to teeter on the edge of legendary. (laughs) We rise. And I was like, yeah. And it was just, I actually feel like I've taken that class. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was just, you know, we're climbing this mountain, we're climbing this mountain, we're climbing this mountain. But, but at the end, that book we handed off, I was like, that's a book I can be proud of. That's a book that I'd ask myself the question, can a book like this end and it not end in the family being estranged? Could it be written and actually bring healing Mm -hmm. to a family? And I can tell you right now that because of God, there's so much healing that's happened between me and my mom. She's back in my life. My dad and I are stronger than ever. You know, I mean, there, there are certainly like, there are always going to be people, um, who, who aren't supportive, I guess, but the vast majority and everybody who counts have been wildly, wildly supportive of where this book landed. They can see that I was trying to tell this story, what it looks like through the the lens of grace. And uh, that changes everything. Yeah, I would agree to that too. I think I see grace and I see redemption. And I see beauty in every chapter. Mm. Um, I even, I mean, even after school and when you met Justin, I actually, I really loved just because we do, we, you know, we do enter relationships as broken people. Mm-hmm. I mean, not unless you have gone through your entire healing journey uh, before meeting your husband. It's for the most part, you're both bringing in your baggage or your luggage into the home together to sort through, you know, it's yeah. like, um, yeah. and so I want to read just from your, um, your chapter about Justin, which I believe is chapter 14, because mm. it really struck home because you know, I think I come from the same place of, well, I'll just read it. (laughs) Um, I asked him once if he ever wished he had met a girl just a little less broken, one with fewer scars, fewer dark places in the twists and turns of the deepest hallways of her heart, less emotional baggage that once left unpacked opens up again and again, like an old wound grown familiar, faithful only in its stubborn and steadfast refusal to heal. Um, (laughs) Because it struck me because I'm Mm. like, sounds like me um but I also think there's just so many people that 
head into relationships um, with their baggage, hoping someone else can fix them. Yeah. And, or like you and I, steadfast to the refusal to heal mm-hmm. um, because maybe we've taken care of ourselves. We know what we need. We don't need that, you know, but, yeah. but um, I love because through Justin, he was your rock and you say, I see love because I have known love hmm. and through yeah. it all, it continues on where in the deepest part of my heart, this is how I believe God loves us too. Yeah. And so I just think it's so beautiful because just as Justin loved your scars, loves your scars and was, you know, doesn't care about your brokenness and is there through it all. So is God. God is in our brokenness. He's in our luggage and he's trying to help us sort it out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it was important just how people, there, there are men out there that will love us for our brokenness. Yeah. And yeah. And I think a lot of times maybe we, that's where we feel that we aren't worthy of love or we are, we aren't deserving of it. And so I just found that to be very beautiful and encouraging for anyone who maybe has a broken, a brokenness that, um, and it's keeping them from truly giving themselves over, you know, to love. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The, his response to that, that question, like, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been easier, a suburb, a happy home? Like if I was raised just like you and we just didn't have all this stuff to deal with. And he said, I love your scars. Like I love your dots. Um, and dots are what I, like I say in the book, what I want to tell you are freckles, but are really just moles. Um, (laughs) and he always like joked that he was going to like, I'm going to wake up one morning and he's going to have taken a Sharpie and like drawn all the constellations, um, out of these moles. And he said, when I connect them, it helps me see who you are. And, um, I think like I call that chapter a constellation of complicated or or that section or something yeah and you know I think that's it it's this it's somebody who looks at you and they don't say well yeah that happened in the past let's bury it and never look at it again let's look at the life we have now it's somebody who says bring all of you Mm. like every bit of who you are every bit of your story and like feel free to be all of those things and I'm gonna find the beauty in it and Justin and I we um we were photographers together for about 15 years. We had a wedding photography business. And I think like, that's kind of like, it defined how we approach that kind of storytelling too. Like we didn't need it to always be airbrushed and like fairy tale and perfect. We saw beauty in the bittersweet and trees in the tears. And so I think that's it. It's like, don't go with somebody who says, yeah, but life's perfect now. And let's just be like the Joneses or the highlight reel or only focus on the perfect, like love somebody who or choose somebody who will love everything you bring to the table, even the hard, who doesn't like turn their face away in shame, but leans in in curiosity and says, tell me more. Absolutely. Especially as we mentioned in the beginning, how Justin and both Chris come from these beautiful, happy, calm homes that mm-hmm. just seem super perfect. You know, um, I think it's hard to be different than that and feel mm-hmm. that, you know, well, well, they could meet someone that's similar to them, or they could meet someone who makes it easier. Um, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the floodgates do open. You know, those wounds do open sometimes, and um, it's just a matter of them being there to help you through 
Yeah. I asked Justin once, I was like, so, so you, did you like ever have any kind of childhood drama? Like, was there anything that feels traumatic from your childhood? He was like, and he like really thought about it for a second. He was like, I think we had a mouse in our kitchen once. I was like, that does not count. That's not it. You're, you know, you're out. <laughs> um, but oh, that's the cutest so, thing ever. Yeah. It's so good because he has, you know, his mom's parents and his dad's parents were both married over 40 years. Um, And his parents just hit 40 years. They met like the night after their high school graduation and got married a couple of years later. And they're like, you know, high school sweethearts. So like they, they, they could have just met yesterday for how in love they are. And that has been such a redeeming part of our marriage, of our, of the story of our marriage, because um, I don't know, like, I'm going to probably like botch the imagery, but it's something like, I picture like a really healthy tree, their roots intertwining with a a tree that felt like it was a beautiful tree and it had a lot of growth and a lot of like things it wanted to do still, but it it felt sick, you know, and like just something about like the roots intertwining, like the, the, they grew healthy together. I don't know if that ever happens in botany, but I like that. Grafting, I guess. Sure, (laughs) sure. (laughs) They're like biologists who are like, no, that's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I appreciate the imagery. Um, No, I totally see that. And it just makes you stronger and it makes you more appreciative, I think, Mm. of where you come from. And, And it doesn't have to be embarrassing and it doesn't have to be what you perceive other people to think. Yeah. Be beautiful and, and just redeeming. Oh, I just love it so much. And you are in the process of writing another book. Is that correct? I am. I actually, we have handed off, um, actually today they're handing it off to the final, final proofreading round of copy editing. So exciting. Yeah. That's a huge step to get to, as you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this thing is actually finally almost out of my hands (laughs) for now. Um, and so this book, it's in many ways a follow-up to dirt. And I always say, if dirt is a love letter to the girl in the trailer, this second book is a love letter to that girl after it's the woman standing in her white kitchen with everything she once dreamed of, who now has sort of lost the wonder, right? You grow up and you become this adult with to-do lists and and a refrigerator that's acting up and maybe a boiler (laughs) that needs to replacing. And you, and there's this, one of my favorite scenes in the beginning, it's talking about like, I don't know where all the fireflies have gone. Like we've ceased to find wonder. And I say, if that wild thing untamed from the top of Fenwick mountain in rural West Virginia was sitting on my couch beside me with her skin knees and her messy hair looking up at me, she would say the same thing that maybe I've been asking myself, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, That's this good. book is like, how do we give up that overachieving to try to feel safe, to try to feel worthy, to try to feel like we've finally gotten somewhere where we matter. So I'm really excited for it, especially as like a one-two punch. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for that. Um, Does it have a title or will we have to wait for that? We have not revealed that title yet, but I will say if you do a little bit of investigating, (laughs) you will find it. It may or may not be up on Amazon already. (laughs) Oh oh my goodness. I'm going to go do my scooping. Yeah. Uh, So where can people find your book, Dirt? Where can they follow you and listen to your podcast? Yeah. So probably the best place to start is thebookdirt.com. So it's T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. And when you go there in like a few seconds, 
a pop-up will come up where you can actually grab the whole first chapter, the prologue in the first chapter of Dirt, and you can start reading that for free um, right away. You can read about, you know, some of the, we have some incredible endorsements, Morgan Harper Nichols and Hannah Brencher, um, Emily Lay, lots of amazing people endorse the book. You can kind of check all that out. You can watch the, my favorite part though, is the book trailer where you actually get to see me go home to that trailer in West Virginia as a, a grown woman. Oh, um, so check all that out. And then from there, you can easily link. There's a, a link in the menu to the podcast, which is the Mary Morant show. You can check out the episode that I did with Desiree um, that just came out a couple weeks ago, actually. Yes, check and it out. <laughs> sure you listen to that. You can hear the other side of the conversation. Um, and then it's at Mary Morantz on all the socials. Come over and send me a DM on Instagram if you listen and let us know what you think. Yes. Go follow her. She's amazing. I love all your posts too. You're just, you're very encouraging and inspirational. So know that and be encouraged to keep it up. Um, Oh my gosh. I just, I want to be friends with you. Why are we on opposite sides? I know. We're on opposite. Hey, come to Oregon. It's really pretty. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, I know. Well, thank you again, Mary. Please keep in touch. And um, I just can't wait to read your new book. Yay. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Bye. I just absolutely loved having Mary on and she's just such a phenomenal woman. So I hope that you go pick up her book, Dirt, and also check out, um, if you haven't checked out the episode that I was on with her, I talk more about my story and also more about the book. My book, Road to Roses, you can pick it up now wherever books are sold or head to DesireeSigfried.com to check it out. And if you haven't already, if you have read the book and haven't left a review that is always so, so helpful for authors. So if you want to head to Amazon and give a review, that is so, so thank you so very much. Um, just to end the day and this out, I really want to offer you um, some prayer to get your day going, get it started, or if you're ending your day to find solace and peace wherever you are. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for everyone listening. We just thank you for the stories that you put inside of us. We, we, we thank you for all that we have gone through, for every experience, good or bad, to have, to have it make us who we are and who you have called us to be. Father God, we just pray for anyone that is maybe in their story right now that can't see a way out. Father God, we just pray for you to bring them peace, to bring them comfort, Lord God, and to bring them hope so that they know that the best is yet to come, that their story is going to be their testimony on the other side, and that their testimony will be able to bless others. And Father God, we know that our story is your story, and you are not finished with us yet. And so, Lord, I just pray for everyone to continue on in their journeys, continue on in strength, continue on in peace and in hope, knowing that you are with us all along in every tear and every hurt and every pain and every worry father god we give it all to you we just thank you for this opportunity to come together on the podcast and and to lift you up and to um, worship your name in jesus name amen have a beautiful beautiful day you guys bye